marks five months since LMPD officers shot and killed Breonna Taylor in her apartment. Family of Breonna Taylor met face to face with Attorney General Daniel Cameron today. He's investigating whether the police officers who shot and killed her should be criminally charged. WTRB's Gilbert Corsi explains it comes almost five months after that. Sure, I don't know that he was expecting in his first year to be in charge of what I would say is probably like I can't think of too many bigger cases involving the law anywhere in America right now. Like people are watching this case so closely. From the digital journalists of WDRB.com, this is Uncovered, a behind the scenes look at stories affecting education, business, criminal justice, and more in Louisville, Kentucky. And now for the show. This is Chris Otts of WDRB.com, and today I am pleased to welcome back a special guest to the show. Perry Bacon Jr. is a senior political writer for the data journalism website 538. He's also a Louisville native and Louisville resident. Perry, thanks very much for joining us once again on the podcast. Chris, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it last time. Looking forward to this one as well. So, Perry, in addition to covering national politics for 538, you write a newsletter on the side called Bluegrass Beat, all about Louisville and Kentucky politics. It's a really interesting read. There's a lot of good stuff on there. And what I want to talk about today is one of your articles. It's from July, and it's called The Complicated Racial Politics Around Daniel Cameron. Cameron, of course, is the Attorney General of Kentucky. He came on the stage last year. He had not sought any other office before that and was elected statewide, becoming the first African-American to be elected statewide in Kentucky on his own ticket. Uh, Janine Hampton was lieutenant governor on the Matt Bevin ticket in 2015. So Cameron is a real rising star in the Republican Party. He's also very young at 34. But one of the first things that Cameron has to navigate in that office is being in charge of the investigation surrounding the death of Brianna Taylor, the emergency medical tech who was killed in Louisville by police during a search raid that went badly wrong in March. And her death has sparked national outrage, months of protests in our city and around the country. I want to start with one line from your newsletter article. Brianna Taylor's death has complicated what seemed like Cameron's clear and obvious route to political stardom. Can you explain? So, is so Daniel Cameron is black, and I think in in this in this, and I'm not just writing about it in the context of just his race alone. Like you know, Daniel Cameron is speaking at the Republican National Convention on Tuesday. I think that you know Michael Adams, the Secretary of State of Kentucky, was not invited to that. And I think so. The part so the interesting part about Daniel Cameron is not just that he's black, but in some ways the Republican Party has made him a central figure and sort of elevated him as a status. I would argue in part 
part because of that racial factor. It's not just the so in other words, his political status, like he's black as an individual in the same way that I am, but his political status in the Republican Party, I think, is heightened and there's an attempt to elevate him in part because one, the party has very few black voters. I think about seven percent of uh of Republican voters are black compared to about twenty percent of Democratic voters, for example. And then particularly in the Trump era, the Republican Party has this perception of being um being racist, like you know, and Trump himself is criticized for being racist. Other Republicans are as well. So to address that, they've sort of they they are pushing Cameron forward. I would say the Republican Party and Cameron, being an ambitious guy and being I think a pretty talented guy, is um is is is, is, is welcoming that he's accepting that he's speaking at the convention on Tuesday, the National Republican Convention. But the Taylor case, you know, brings us right to the forefront because now Cameron has to make a really highly charged decision on a racial issue. I would argue if Cameron concludes that these three officers, he clears all three of them of charges, it's going to be more complicated for the Republican Party to elevate him as this black figure. He'll still be black, of course, but he will get so much criticism from the black community, not just in Louisville, I would argue in the rest of Kentucky, I would argue in America, you know, Beyonce wrote him a note demanding he press charges. So it'll be black people nationally. I might even be black people internationally because it's such a big case. So I think in that sense, it'll be complicated to elevate him as a Republican figure to appeal to black people if he he is, you know, kind of taken on this high profile case and irritated black people who overwhelmingly, I think, want to see some charges against Taylor, against uh, against the officers, I mean, against officers who killed Taylor. But the second part of this is like Cameron ran a campaign as a very traditional conservative Republican, and he got endorsed by the police union of Kentucky as part of that, the, the FOP. So I think if Cameron is perceived as being too hard on the officers, that's also bad because the Republican Party is very aligned with the police. And if you look at the polls, particularly in Kentucky, Black Lives Matter is has very low standing among Republicans in Kentucky. So if Cameron is perceived to have taken some action to help Black Lives Matter at the expense of the police, which I think some people would view charging the officers as, that's going to be a problem for him with the Republican Party. Because ultimately, as much as he wants to be a figure respected by black people, he has to be conscious that he's a aspiring Republican, and that's a party that has very few black people. Perry, you mentioned that Cameron is speaking at the Republican National Convention, so he'll have this uh, elevated stage uh, here very soon. We, I do think this podcast will come out on Tuesday, uh, and so uh, if you're listening, then he'll be speaking that evening. Um, so that's something to watch out for. But let's first review how Cameron got here in the first place. I believe he's younger than both of us. I think he's 34, uh, and he's an acolyte of uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell. But can you just talk about you know his um, sudden rise? So he was part of, so Mitch McConnell has this program that he's been involved with, and it's called the McConnell Scholars. And and, kid, and I, think, I, think you can, I think you can apply from all over the country, but a lot of kids from Louisville have applied to this program. Basically, it, it not only, if you're admitted to the McConnell Scholars, it's a way to develop people who are, who are interested in being involved, involved in politics. So you often get, you know, McConnell brings in speakers. I think he, he's brought in, I think he brought in Senator Tim Kaine, both um, a couple years ago, both Republicans and Democrats come to this program. So 
So, so um, Cameron went to college, in, you know, went to U of L. I think played on the football team for some period. Was also a McConnell scholar. Got to know the senator back then, even. And so he went to U of L Law School, uh, graduated, and then he. It's, and then I've forgotten his exact timeline from when he worked at law firms, but he he actually worked in McConnell's office in Washington for a period. He came back here, and then in twenty uh, twenty or in early twenty nineteen, late twenty eighteen, um, he decided to run for attorney general. He didn't have a ton of experience, and my lawyer friends he had said he had very very little experience being attorney general of a state. What he did have is like McConnell never fully endorsed him, but the McConnell aides and the McConnell network here in Kentucky were strongly behind Cameron pushed him forward, embraced him. Um, and so he won a primary, even though most of the Kentucky members of the state Senate and the state house, the other, the, 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 so the Kentucky establishment, um, other than Mitch McConnell was behind a guy named uh, another candidate named Will Schroeder, who's a state Senator, but Cameron won the primary fairly narrowly, but, but I, by enough. And then he won the general election because he's a Republican in Kentucky. So you generally win unless you're Matt Bevan. And so he is now in his first year as an, as an AG, and so he sort of like rose to power sort of very quickly. He'd not run for anything. He had not, you know, Kentucky is usually a state where you have to like spend a lot of time, you know, going up the ranks for a while. Bevan actually sort of skipped that too. But it's unusual sort of jump up the ranks like this and pass over people because attorney general is very coveted. And I would argue Cameron, you know, if I had, if you asked me in January, I would have said Cameron is definitely a future U.S. Senator or Governor of Kentucky. And I would have said that, but this case, I think, makes it a little harder. But I still think Cameron is on the rise, and that's kind of because of the way he's set up. He's early in his tenure, he was invited to, I think right after he got elected in November 2019, he was invited to this event called Black Republicans for Trump that was in Atlanta, and he was one of the speakers there. He's been to the White House a couple times. I think he met with Trump after in the rake of the sort of the protest about police violence in the country. Cameron has been there. So again, Cameron's not just a regular attorney general. He's someone who has been mentored by Mitch McConnell, one of the most powerful because in the country. And he's someone who's on Donald Trump's radar screen already, which is not the case for the average attorney general of a fairly small state. Another thing you said in your newsletter, Perry, uh, is that you could see him speaking at the uh, at the RNC. So uh, good call on that. Uh, you you you, you <laughs> right. know you know your stuff. Um, so so Cameron has this quick rise, and as you said, he's now Attorney General, one of the most coveted spots because it's a jumping off point to Senator, Governor. Uh, and and all of these higher offices, and he's at a, a very young age to uh, to to hold that post. Um, and the reason that he is in charge of the Brianna Taylor case is because the local prosecutor in Louisville, Tom Wine, recused himself. So that sort of kicked the case over to Cameron's office. And I should say that. You know, here in the local media, you know, we've just been waiting with bated breath. And Cameron even came out yesterday uh, and said on Twitter, hey, uh, we're not going to make a decision on Breonna Taylor this week because rumors were just running rampant. And that's the way it's been for 
two months now, everyone's been trying to read the tea leaves as to when he's going to make a decision about whether the officers involved are charged and what those charges would be, whether it will go to a grand jury, etc. There have been at least two protests where people have showed up to Cameron's house and and sat on his lawn, including one where dozens of people uh, were sitting on his lawn. So this is really um, uh, quite a big thing that has landed in his lap. And you wrote in your article that the big challenge for Cameron is that there are really only two paths he can take, and both are arguably politically perilous. Can you tease that out a little bit? So I said one path was if you, you know, so you, so inevitably he has to make a decision there's no way if you don't charge anyone like you you have to charge people or or i'm not a legal expert but in this case and i'm not going to pretend to be here but you have to either file charges or not file charges and there's no way one one caveat there perry i believe he can also have he can also use a grand jury that's probably it could be the grand jury's decision as to file or 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 not to file but he's ultimately the one who owns the the investigation the definitive account of what happened here is is coming will ultimately come from his office and if ultimately the grand jury decides not to file charges even if he claims that's if he says this because of the grand jury, I think inevitably if there are no charges filed at the end of this process, I would argue Daniel Cameron is going to get a lot of criticism from people who are people who feel like something like you, you now have NBA players after press conferences who 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 probably never been to Kentucky are now saying we demand charges. So if there are no charges filed, yeah, I agree with you. That's, I wish I had put them put the pieces. You actually can sort of defer it, but eventually if charges are not filed, that's going to be on camera. And if charges are filed, that's an interesting case too, because again, like in, in a lot of cases, the law actually makes it fairly hard to convict police officers of, of, of violations because it, the law sort of has is sort of set up in a way where it suggests that often there gives, gives them a, a supposition that they are defending themselves from, from peril and from, and this is their job to do so. So I think it'll be hard for him. So I think that, so in other words, I think the paths are, if some charges are filed, I'm guessing the police community who in the law enforcement community who Cameron is close to maybe can be flustered. And if the no charges are filed, I think there'll be a whole different issue from people all over the country criticizing him on this on the on the on the rule on the decision. So that's kind of what I was getting at in the pieces. Like it's not necessarily any easy pass out. And I'm not and for Cameron, somebody who I think I don't know that he sort of get into the attorney general job to be tough on the cops or to be easy on the cops. I mean, I'm not sure that I don't know that he was expecting in his first year to be in charge of what I would say is probably like, I can't think of too many bigger cases involving the law anywhere in America right now. Like people are watching this case so closely. Speaking of people who are watching the case, uh, Senator Kamala Harris, who's now the vice presidential nominee for the Democrats, this is her Twitter on June 20th. Breonna Taylor was murdered by police on March 13th, and the only consequence handed down so far is the firing of one officer. That's not justice. Every officer involved in her murder must be arrested. 
So you can see the the kind of national attention that that this case is getting and the pressure. I guess Perry, you got at this a little bit in your article, but I wonder, you know, Cameron obviously it's easy to see the risk politically for him uh if he does go along with like what people like Kamala Harris want in this case. It might be a little bit harder, though, to see, you know, the downsides uh, uh, of him clearing the police officers in this case. And can you sort of tease that out? What do you see as as the practical downside, given that Cameron is, you know, immersed uh, in Republican pro-police politics? You know, it's hard to, like, I'm not sure I could say he will lose this many votes in a Republican primary for it. Like, I I think it's less of an, ele- like, it, it'd be hard for me to claim the electoral case is really that clear cut. Like, again, most Republicans are pro-police. They're skeptical of Black Lives Matter. There are very few black Republicans. So in a primary, if he's running for, like, governor in a couple of years, you know, in a few years or sitting in a primary, I'm not sure I would say that's a big problem. I think if he, like, I hate to say, you know, this is crazy to say, but if he's, like, thinking about, like, running for president. If you're 34 and you're the attorney general of a state, I think you might be have big ambitions at the end of the day. I think that this is more like sort of these, I, I hate the term brand, but I think it applies here because I think part of Cameron's brand, I would argue right now, is to be sort of this up and coming black person who is perceived as being, if not like, he's not like Clarence Thomas, let's say, who I think Republicans kind of know is is highly disliked in the black community, particularly. I think if you if you polled people in Kentucky previously, black people in Kentucky previously about Cameron, it'd be kind of like, you know, we're not Republicans, but he seems like a nice guy is what I think he's getting now. And I think that's a helpful thing in the same way that I think like Tim Scott, the Republican senator from South Carolina, I think is in a similar place where he is not perceived, like my impression of him being in South Carolina, some covering him is he's not, most black people did not vote for him in South Carolina because they're Democrats, but they perceive him as being somebody who, who they respect, who they sort of value his achievement and so on. And I think that and if you look at what Tim Scott has done, Tim Scott was one of the people who criticized Trump pretty sharply after Charlottesville and what happened there. And so he Tim Scott's in this very careful line where he's never too anti. He's, he's not like a Democrat on racial issues, but he definitely doesn't sound like a lot of Trumpy Republicans do either. And I think he tries to capture that balance. And I think watching Daniel's early politics, he's not necessarily one. He's very aligned with Trump, but he doesn't necessarily go. In, I don't think he would defend the Charlottesville comments or that kind of thing. He's not been in that place yet. I think he's trying to have this careful line where his brand is somebody who's perceived. Because ultimately, if you're a Republican office seeker and you're black, part of what you're presenting is not, I'm going to win over. There's a little bit of a fakery going on here, which is part of which if you're a Republican and Colin Powell, people have done this throughout, is like, if you're a black Republican, often you sort of imply to other Republicans and other people you can win black votes. You probably really can't because you're a Republican. But the idea is you might appeal to sort of white suburbanites who are looking to vote for somebody who is they perceive as sort of racially progressive or racially centrist. And that is and sort of the perception of a black person being, that's kind of why the Republican Party is always trying to, and, and trying to elevate black faces is that they have this perception problem. And they're not, the Republican Party really doesn't believe they're going to win a ton of black votes, but they want to win over sort of moderate whites. And one way to do that is present is to make sure you're not perceived as being anti-minorities. Interesting. I hope I said yeah, that somewhat yeah. clearly, but that's kind of what I was getting. Yeah, no, at. Yeah. no. I, I I think that makes sense. And 
And one thing I want to ask you about here, Perry, is it's interesting because the Republican Party in Kentucky uh, is the one that is nominating uh, racial minorities and actually getting them elected to to statewide office. We have two recent examples uh, here, um, and you know that's in contrast uh, to um, to the Democratic statewide tickets lately. And curious what you make of that. So there's a lot going on there, and I think it's a little bit complicated to talk about. So. The Kentucky Democrats, I think, would never say this openly, but I think what my sense is their perception is, hey, we're in a red state anyway, and if we put a black person on the ticket, we we can you know we can barely win elections in the first place. There may be some amount of people who are who don't want to vote for a black person, and if we are, we're only going to like Andy Bashir won by five thousand votes. So if there's like 0.4 percent of the electorate that doesn't want to vote for a black person, they've lost the race. So I think what they're doing is applying a bit of, and I remember when Attica Scott, Attica Scott is very liberal, so that's a different issue, but I do think part of what's going on here is that you see this in the states in the South, and you see this in other states too, is a little bit of a sense that we have to pick somebody who's electable, and electable in our view means moderate, and sometimes in terms of policy, but also means also white at times, and I think that's a problematic norm. I don't think people vote that way. Even if they do, I don't, I think it's bad for the, you know, alleged political party of minority to sort of be acting on this. They would never admit this, and I can't prove it, but I think that's part of what's going on. And I think that plagued Kamala Harris's presidential campaign to this reception that there might be some racist voters in sort of Wisconsin who would vote for Joe Biden, but not Kamala Harris. And I think that that happens a lot in politics. I think that's one thing going on. The second is, I would argue the Republicans here in Kentucky have been very focused on that. Like, Bevin picked a black woman as his, as his lieutenant governor. He didn't have to do that. Andy Bashir didn't do that. So I think it's like relevant worth worth thinking about that. And, you know, McConnell has had a big role in pushing forward Cameron's career, I would argue. And it's I don't see, you know, not to be not to be critical. I don't see Steve Bashir having done that for anybody, as far as I can tell, as, a, as a, even though he's a big Democratic Party uh, poobah. And you could see that a little bit in the Booker race. And I can that was the first time I could tell that where there was I could tell that that the party had pushed McGrath forward, but there was some reluctance about that. And some of Booker's allies, you know, privately and a little bit publicly would say occasionally, hey, why don't Kate why doesn't why don't Kentucky Democrats give a black person a chance to run statewide? Daniel Cameron just won. So maybe so I think there was an undercurrent of that in the Booker race. And I do think having seen Booker do pretty well in this primary. I, I think in 2022, if Booker decides to run for the Senate against Rand Paul, I do think he'll be the first among equals. And the, and the Kentucky Democrats will probably think about, do they want to block him from doing that, looking at their racial record? So Perry, as we look ahead here, Cameron is about to have the national stage uh, at the RNC. And Look back to 2004 and Barack Obama. That can be a pretty that can be a pretty valuable platform. Uh, what what are you going to be looking for uh, in in his performance? This is a big moment because, like you said, convention speeches the convention speech made Barack Obama's life, and it can be a big high profile situation. So, for me, it's like. If I'm Daniel Cameron, you've got to be thinking Trump is down in the polls. 
Trump is unlikely to win. He might still win, of course, but I think you want to give a speech that if I'm Daniel Cameron, I'm thinking a little selfishly. Is there a way I can give a speech that supports the president, of course, but also opens some new doors for me and maybe some doors in both a party in which Trump wins re-election, but also in a, in a, some doors in a party in which Trump has lost re-election. And I think if the Republicans lose this election, there's going to be more soul-searching about, like, where does the party go? And I think part of it is the party still needs to get away from this reception that it has some racist elements. And and so if I'm Daniel Cameron, I'm thinking about how do I speak into that? Is there a way for me to portray myself as a conservative, but somebody who can help the party move forward on racial issues, but also somebody who is not sort of so woke that they're not really a Republican? So that's kind of that. There's a careful line where you, because like I said, Daniel Cameron is up there in part because he's black. That is unmistakably true. So how do you take that opportunity you have and in it's in part related to your race, but also to use it smartly and to use it to keep your brand going. And also, I'll be curious, honestly, I assume he has to make some reference to the Taylor case because that's so maybe he doesn't. But I'll be curious if he alludes to complicated situations happening in Kentucky, dealing with hard issues, because I think that this case is so important that I would be surprised if Cameron Kennedy, he might, but I think it's become so part of his public profile that I would assume he almost should allude to it at least. Perry, I'm sure you have your hands full with writing for 538 and doing their podcasts, of which I'm a big fan. But tell us about the Bluegrass Beat side project that you do. And we'll put a link in the show notes. But most importantly, how can people go and subscribe uh, for those articles? So you can go to bluegrassbeat.substack.com. So bluegrassbeat, all one word, dot substack, dot com. And then once you go to that, you can sign up. You can sign up for the newsletter. And you can put your email address and you can sign up. Also, you can see most of the posts if you go to that page as well. You can just sort of scroll through. There's an option to say, let me read it first. And you can click on it and you can read some of the posts. And so just to sort of briefly explain that project, um, so I work at 538, but I've also wanted to do some sort of local writing about things that are happening here because there's so much interesting happening politically here in Kentucky. Like my main focus is on the McGrath-McConnell race. I know McConnell's likely to win, but I still think this is such a big race because he is arguably either the first or second most powerful person in American politics right now. I think the case for the first is not totally crazy. And so it's a big race. So I'm covering that mainly, but I'm also writing about things like Daniel Cameron. I'm writing about a lot about Governor Bashir, who's become a national figure himself. I'm I'm endlessly surprised that Andy Bashir, who I who I thought was kind of you know dull guy, son of the governor, not a lot going on there, has become a really interesting, compelling, leaderly person who is who's, who's doing a lot and taking a lot of heat. So I write a lot about Governor Bashir, a lot about Daniel Cameron, but also just a lot about like this is an interesting state politically. So I've been doing a lot of kind of pieces, just looking at the political culture and how it's changing here, particularly around the protest and around what's happened with Breonna Taylor's death and since then. So I hope you bluegrassbeat.substack.com. Well, it's great stuff, but hey, Perry, you opened this door, so I want to walk through it really quickly. You have one on there recently that says 5,137 votes and 0.4%, which was Andy Bashir's margin of victory over Matt Bevan. 
I didn't think it would happen. I was surprised, but he just barely got over the hump. If you ran that race randomly uh, the same day, if you could run it 10 times, I bet Bevan would have won five of them uh, at, at least. Um, do you see uh, Bashir being in a good place for re-election? I know it's it's hard to even to even think about that, but the but it it is so hard for a Democrat statewide in Kentucky. So, the polling I've seen, and there's been only four or five polls, but I've seen polls that have showed his approval rating for how he's handling COVID is in the 60s. Like, despite all the criticism from the Republican leadership in the State House and Daniel Cameron, and, 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 and Andy has done, and the governor has done some controversial things, I would say, that people don't always have to agree with his decisions, and I think they, they've been hard, this is a hard time, but despite the noise you see in the opposition, he's generally been very popular in terms of his COVID handling. In, in other words, he barely got, like he got around 49% of the vote. So getting 60% of people approving your handling of the COVID crisis, considering this is a fairly conservative state, is pretty good. So I think he's, I think he's going to have of like right now sitting here right now I would say he has basically 50 50 odds because the problem for him is still Matt Bevin was so unpopular the teachers of Kentucky basically made it their mission as a group to defeat him so I think if, if like Daniel Cameron or is running or if like I think Michael Adams the secretary of state has been done some popular things um, I think Ryan Quarles, the Ag Commissioner. I think if Jamie one of those Comer, three is, the Congress Comer, right? Yeah. yeah, I think there's three or four people who I think are are going to be less, are going to have less of a controversial record than Bevin. I do think Andy won because mainly because of Bevin's faults. If you saw, you saw the statewide results, every other Republican won and won comfortably, pretty much. So I still think that Andy's. But I say it's 50-50 because I would say it would have been like 35% for the normal governor. But I think Andy Bashir has done a good job, has received has done a good job. And I think that Bashir name is kind of a great brand in Kentucky. Perry, let's do one on McConnell and McGrath before November 3rd. I so much appreciate you uh, taking time for us uh, today. And thanks for being on. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. The Uncovered Podcast is a production of WDRB Media. Please subscribe, review, and rate wherever you get your podcasts.